We're going to continue our study through the book of 1 John. We've been going verse by verse through this book, and so you can take your Bibles and open to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be covering verses 15 and 16 this morning. Uh, now, there are a few places in the Bible, as you're turning, where the author of Scripture, the authors give very succinct summaries of their theology. Uh, there's a few places where this happens. You have this very succinct, very pithy summary of an author's theology. Uh, and those verses, when uh, the authors of Scripture do that, those verses become sort of famous. Uh, they're verses that get put on coffee mugs uh, because they're very powerful and they have meaning and they are very succinct and very uh, summary forming. Uh, for example, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, perhaps you know these verses. Uh, it's the text where Paul says, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But if you look through those verses, it is a summary of Paul's theology. He covers from justification in verses 8 and 9 through sanctification in verse 10 and glorification in verse 11, all in just a few words. And, and to try to take those verses apart and teach through them is very difficult. Uh, it takes a lot of work. In fact, the, uh, the youth group has been going through the book of Philippians, and Kevin and I have been rejoicing together over Philippians 3, 8 through 11, just how glorious those verses are. Paul also does this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He actually says, the goal of all of our instruction is love. Now, that's pretty cool. And he just tells us, everything that I'm doing, all the teaching that I'm doing, my goal for all of it is love. Uh, that's amazing. Those succinct summary style verses in the Scripture give us things that are helpful in terms of understanding the Bible. And as I said, these passages become incredibly important. And the text that we're going to look at this morning is John giving us that type of summary. He gives us a passage that summarizes his thinking around the atonement, God, and love. I almost titled the sermon John's Manifesto, but thought better of it. Uh, it seemed a little strong, but these verses are a summary of all that John has taught us in the book, and he will move from this summary into judgment and glorification but this is a summary and really a stunning picture of the Christian life. Look at these verses with me in verses 15 and 16. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So look with me at point one this morning, how does it fit? How does it fit? Now again, if you remember, if you've been with us any length of time, you know the book of 1 John has a structure to it. John has a structure in what he's communicating. The first two chapters can be summarized in the simple phrase, God is light. God is light. Uh, chapters one and two describe God's glory and how He exudes glorious light in the spiritual realm because of His life and holiness and character. And then in the second half of the book, in verses three, in chapters 3 through 5, we find that God is love. And between the fact that God is light and God is love, in the middle we have this statement that God is righteous and that those who are born of God will exude or exhibit the same character that God shows. That's why we've titled the study of this book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. 
John's argument has been that the one who knows God in his light and his love, the one who has God abiding inside of him, will begin to look like God in his character. He will have the same light and the same love and the same righteousness as God has. He will begin to be shaped into the image of God himself. And in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, John provides a summary of that idea that God is love. He says, God is love. The one who knows God and loves is born of God. And the one who doesn't know God or is not born of God does not love. Why? Because God is love. That's his character. Then in verses 9 through 12, he gives us a description of what love does. What does love do? And in verse 9, we see that love in its power is on display at the cross, that God gave His Son as a display of the fact that He does love us. It is a manifestation of the power of God's love. And then in verse 10, we saw that when the power of God is understood, it has practical implications. And then in verses 11 and 12, we saw that the power of God's love is being revealed in the church. So, God's love is seen, it is understood, and then it is active. And last week in verses 13 and 14, we saw that John insists that that God's presence among us in the church is the experiential enjoyment of the Spirit of God corporately. We enjoy the Spirit of God functioning among us corporately. We experience God through love in the church by the power of the Spirit, and that that experience is actually grounded in and maintained by the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the means by which we experience the mutual love and spiritual truths in the body of Christ. And there, John concludes this corporate reality of what love does in the church, and he moves from there into verses 15 and 16. And verses 15 and 16, John changes gears a little bit. This brings us to point two, the gospel confession. The gospel confession in verse 15. Now, in this verse, in verse 15, we see that John changes the way that he's speaking again. If you look in verses 13 and 14, notice he says the word we over and over again. It's the first person singular, plural, right? He's talking about us corporately as a body. And then in verse 15, he says, whoever... So now he's changing again, right? And this whoever, this statement that is generalized is one of John's favorite phrases. He says this all the time, whoever or the one who or anyone who. He he says that a lot actually in the book. And when he says this, these are general statements that are applied to any individual who meets the requirements of the phrase that comes after. So in this case, the whoever here is a framework. What is the framework for? Look at verse 15. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that's the idea that's being stated, the result is that God abides in him and he in God. Now, now John has been talking about this abiding presence of God in the church corporately in verses 13 to 14. He's already said that a number of times. But here he switches to what kind of individual, what kind of a person makes up the church. In other words, who's a believer? Who's a Christian? And what's John's answer? His answer is, a Christian is a person who makes this gospel confession. Look again at verse 15. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that seems like a pretty simple summary statement, right? If, if I were the one writing this book, I would probably add more points of clarification. Uh, but I'm not the one writing this book. So, what is John doing here? 
Well, John has already given us the points of clarification, hasn't he? He's actually told us everything that this means. And in fact, in the simple sentence, Jesus is the Son of God, we have communicated the fullness of that gospel reality. Why do I say that? Well, because by saying that Jesus is the Son of God, John includes two pieces there. Jesus, it was the name given to him at his birth. We came into the world. He took on flesh. He incarnated. And so when John says Jesus, he's talking about the man, Christ Jesus. And that Jesus is the Son of God. Why, why is that important? Well, because He's the Son of God, that means He is divine. He is of equal ontological making with God the Father. And so you have Jesus, the man who is God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So when we say Jesus is the Son of God, we're actually confessing the nature of God in Christ. And there's more to it than that, because if He is the Son of God, then what does that mean? It means that the Son of God took on flesh and came into the world. Look up in verse 9 again. He actually tells us this. He says, by this the love of God was manifested among us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In other words, God's Son came. He came into the world. And why? So that we might live through Him. And then in verse 10, right? In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What we deserve is wrath, but God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to take the wrath that we rightfully deserve off of us. And so, John has already given us everything that is contained in this little phrase, Jesus is the Son of God. And so when John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God is confessing all of that truth all at the same time. We're confessing the truth of the gospel message. And that's what it is to be a Christian. We shouldn't skip over the word confesses either. That word means to say the same as, right? It means to say the same as. Who are we saying the same as when we say Jesus is the Son of God? We're saying the same thing that God said. What did God say on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my what? Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We are saying Jesus is the Son of God. And then He came into the world. We are saying the same thing that God has already said. And so to be saved is to acknowledge that those things are true. To believe them. To confess. To say the same thing as God says. To say Jesus the man who came into the world is the Son of God who came in order that I might have life instead of the condemnation that I rightfully deserve. That is what it is to be a Christian. And so, in a sense, this verse, verse 15, is an open invitation. Look at the first word again. He says what? Whoever, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. It's an open invitation to everyone. Maybe you're here this morning and you've gone to church your whole life. And, and you might say, well, I'm a good Christian person. And your definition of Christian is that you're not Buddhist. Or you're politically conservative and therefore you're Christian. That's not what it is to be a Christian. I just want to appeal to you. Jesus is God's Son. God, the one who created the universe, has a son who is co-equal with him. And that son of God came into the world. He took on flesh and he lived a perfect life that you could never live. He never sinned in anything that he thought, 
anything that he said, anything that he did, even anything that motivated his actions and words. He was always perfectly righteous. And in his perfect righteousness, he earned heaven. He rightfully should have immediately gone to heaven. And yet, he died on a cross. God put him on a cross as a payment for the sins of anyone who would ever believe in him. And that is an open invitation to you this morning if you don't know Christ as your Savior. I would just appeal to you, all of you here, it is so easy for us to make Christianity about the things that we affirm or the places that we go or the people that we're friends with or our belief structures. And that's not Christianity. Not ultimately. Christianity influences all of those things. But true Christianity is the confession that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world and who died on my behalf. So are you here this morning as a believer who knows this, who would joyfully confess, Jesus is the Son of God. He is my Savior. Do you know Him? And if you don't, I would just plead with you now to trust that those things are true, to believe that. And not just that they are true externally, but they are true for you, that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that He came into the world and died for your sins. Trust that. But if you're here and you do know Christ and you say, yes, I believe those things, it's true. If you've made this confession, then John says that what? He says, God abides in you and you in God. Look at verse 15, right? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, we've already talked about this. What is that? It's the Spirit of God who lives in you. You now have God inside of you because you believe those realities. You trust that Jesus died for your sins. And so, now your soul is safe in him and he is with you and you are in him. But it goes beyond that, and this is point three, our mutual faith, our mutual faith. John continues the flow of thought, and he moves back to the first person plural. Look at verse 16. Look what he does. He says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Why would he do that? Uh, This is the kind of stuff in 1 John that just confuses me. I wish he'd just stay with one thing, right? It'd be so much easier for me. But he has a purpose. What's he doing? What he's doing is he's taking his general statement in verse 15, and he's applying it to everyone who makes this confession. We all now. And when John uses the word we here, he means every single person who makes the confession of verse 15, now we have something that's happened inside of us. Well, what has happened? Well, for everyone who has this confession, God produces something. Something is happening. And he summarizes that happening in verse 16. He says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. This is what a true Christian knows. They believe it. They know and believe that God loves them. They believe that. And they know and believe that specifically in the sending of God's Son on their behalf. Now, Again, sometimes we look at grammar, right? Grammar's helpful because it helps us to get at what John is saying. And the verbs know and believe here are in the perfect tense, okay? What is the perfect tense? It's a past action that has continuing results, right? That's why the translators say, we have come to know and have believed. 
It's a past action that now continues in its result for us as true believers. At some time in the past, we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and in confessing that reality, we came to understand and to believe that God loved us. We knew it, and we believed it. That's what happened when you came to Christ. All of us, when we came to Christ, even if you don't remember that day because you were a young child, you knew and believed that God loved you. You understood it. How could you have possibly understood that? Well, because you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world and died for your sins. You trusted that truth. Now, my question is, why split up knowledge and belief? Isn't that interesting? Why do that? What's he doing? Well, John does this actually a lot. Turn with me to John chapter 6. Look at John 6, verse 69. It's a long chapter. So, look at John chapter 6, verse 69. You know, this chapter, Jesus has said some very difficult things. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, they are the ones who will be saved. And he, he says some difficult things, and many of his followers, perhaps 25 or 30,000 people depart, and just a few remain with him. Verse 66, John says this, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then look what he says in verse 69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Almost the exact same phrasing that John uses in 1 John chapter 4. Why? That is the confession of a true believer. But in this case, what does he do? He reverses believe and know. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, the Son of God, sent from God. So he reverses them there. Now look over in John 17 with me. John chapter 17. Now again, we looked at this text last week. It's the high priestly prayer. Look at verse 7 with me. Jesus prays this. He says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which, I, which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. What's he saying there? Same exact ideas, right? The same summary statements are being made there. And look at verse 20. He does the same thing. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, knowledge. So when John uses knowledge and belief, he's not saying that those things are separated. I can know and not believe. I can believe and not know. He's saying those things come together. Now, he's not saying that they're interchangeable. He's not saying knowing truth is believing truth. What he is saying is that saving faith is a true knowledge of Jesus Christ and His coming into the world. We must know if we are going to believe. You can't just say, well, I have faith, I don't really know. That's not okay. We have to know if we're going to believe. And we can't say, well, I know, but I don't necessarily believe. What we know, we must believe if we're going to be truly saved. Those two things must fit together. 
And so when John says what he does in verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, he's saying, we know that God loves us and we trust that God loves us, that both those things come together in tandem. But there's another little verbal help here. It's at the end of that phrase. It says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. So those are perfect tense, right? Those are things that happened in the past that have continuing results, but those things inform the love that God has for us. What tense is that verb in? The love that God has for us. It's in the present tense. What is John saying? What he's saying is that because of our past knowledge and faith, the experience of the reality of the Son of God coming on our behalf, we now have come to know and have believed that God loves us right now. That God loves us right now. There was a time in every Christian's life before they came to Christ when they didn't think God loved them. Then they heard the gospel message, the message that God sent His unique Son into the world, and they knew that it was true, and they believed it because of the work of God in their heart. And that truth believed continues to remind them moment by moment that God loves them. This is what Paul's saying in Galatians 2.20. He says, the life I now live in the flesh. Every day when Paul got up, what did he remind himself of? He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me and gave himself up for me. He knew every moment that God loved him. That's what held Paul's faith. In fact, he makes that same point in Romans 8. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 8. We read this for call to worship, but I want to just show you this again. You probably have sections of this memorized. I hope you do. Look what he says. In verse 31, he says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, that is, he loves us, who is against us? If God, the one who created the whole world and is, and is sovereign over every detail of your life is for you, he's on your side, then who could ever be against you? No one can. And then he says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, everything that's coming into your life, the hardest circumstances you face are from him. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one can. Why? Because God is the one who justifies. Who can condemn you if God justifies you? No one. The Supreme Court has spoken. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Can any difficulty in your life separate you from the love of Christ? Feel free to answer. No, right? It can't. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Verse 38, I am convinced that death isn't going to separate me from the love of Christ. Life, the pains of my life are not going to separate me from the love of Christ. Angels, there's no demon in the universe who can touch the love of Christ for me. No things present, no things to come, no powers, no height, no depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's amazing. God loves you right now. Right now. And let me just ask you this. Do you believe that right now? Good. Whoever said yes, say it louder. That's crazy to think of. 
Think of that. He loves you right now if you're a believer, if you know him, if you've confessed, if you've trusted, God loves you. He does. Maybe you're here and you're doubting that God loves you. So I don't know if he loves me. Because of trials, I have suffering. Life is hard. I, I have pain. Things hurt me. I have bad health, difficult relationships, financial strain. If God loved me, why wouldn't he take these things away? What would Paul say? Paul, say those, Paul would say those trials don't separate you from the love of Christ. In all of those things, you overwhelmingly conquer through God who loves you. In other words, what? God has a purpose to change you into the image of his son through the pain that you're enduring now. It's not a lack of love. It's the greatest form of love to bring you something that would make you more like Christ. Your trials aren't separating you from the love of God in Christ. Maybe you're here and you're doubting that God loves you because of your sin. Say, how could God love a sinner like me? How could God love me because of sin? And it's not one sin, it's repeated sins. How could God love a sinner like me? And Paul would say what? No one can bring a charge against God's elect. God is the one who justified you in Christ. Who's going to condemn you? That includes even yourself. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you are not condemned. You are justified. God's love continues though you sin. Or maybe you're here and you're doubting that God loves you because you're not as sanctified as you should be. <laughs> you think, you know, I've been a Christian quite a few years now. I mean, I'm a pastor. I should be better than this. <laughs> maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe deep in your heart, you know you don't measure up. You might never say it out loud, but you're trying. You want to put a good face on it, but you're not getting where you think you should be. What would Paul say? He would say, you didn't earn God's love in the first place. He doesn't keep you in his love now because you work hard. It's entirely up to Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So I want you to think about that for a minute and just ask yourself, do I trust that? Do I really believe that God loves me like that? Now, this is where Christianity is the most profoundly personal religion, because I can only answer for me. I, I wish I could answer for my kids. I wish I could answer for, answer for each of you, but I can't. It is up to you to answer that question. Do you believe that God loves you? And I hope you do. Because your whole Christian experience, your whole change of life, everything that comes will flow out of that truth. Everything will flow out of that truth. Do you believe that? And maybe you have believed it in the past, and right now you say, I'm not sure. What should you do? Well, John's already told us, hasn't he? What should we do? We should just go back to verse 15. 
1 John chapter 4, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. <laughs> How do I remind myself of the love of Christ? How do I remind myself that God loves me? The clearest display of the love of God is what? That he sent his son into the world to die for your sins. If he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over on your behalf, he will freely, with Christ, give you everything else. God sent his son so that you might have life rather than condemnation. He loves you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? So, we've seen the gospel confession, and we've seen this mutual faith that all believers share, but he doesn't stop here in verse 16. And this is point four, a life of love, a life of love. Look at verse 16. The final thing he says is, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Again, John's hard. What's he doing here? He actually moves one step forward in his argument. And it's based on the premise that God is love, right? He reminds us of that at the second half of the verse. He says, God is love. Now, that again provides that definitional reality of God's character. God is love. He's many other things also, right? God is simple, uh, not in the sense of like, not complex, but God is simple insofar as He is all things at all times. He isn't made up of parts. God is many things. He is just at all times. He is merciful at all times. But John here tells us that God is love. And in fact, this is the only God is statement that's repeated twice by the same author. But this is in the flow of the argument here. We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. We actually know and believe that God loves us through that truth. And in believing that truth, what are we saying about God? We're confessing his character, right? God is love. And when John hits this point, he's summarizing everything that's gone before, and then he's going to move to the conclusion. So he says that the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And there's three questions we have to ask here. First one is this. What does it mean to abide in love? What is that? Because I want to understand this, right? God is love. The one who abides in love, God abides in him and he in God. So that sounds good to me. What does it mean to abide in love? Well, what, what does it mean to abide? Well, it means to stay, right? So what does it mean to stay or to remain in love? What is that? Well, if you watch movies, they'll tell you it's hard to stay in love, right? Uh, that's not what John's talking about here. In fact, when John uses the word love this way in a general sense, what's he talking about? Well, in verse 10, we actually saw this. It's referencing all love, all Christian love. What do we mean by that? It's the love that God has for you and the love that you respond with to God and to other people. When John says, abide in love, he's talking about abiding in that loving relationship with God and the love that comes out of your heart toward other people. What John is saying is the fullness of what he's communicated about love. To abide in love is to believe the love that God has for you and then to live that love out toward him and toward others. It is both faith and response. Now again, remember, in verse 9, the power of God's love was displayed. 
And in verse 10, the power of God's love was understood. And in verse 11, the power of God's love is at work. Those are the three things that God's love is shown to be. And that's where he's been. So when John says, abide in love, what he's saying is, stay there. Stay there. Trust God's love for you and obey the command to love him and love others because of the love that he has for you. So stay or remain in that sphere of love that God has created around you because of what he's done for you in Christ. Stay there. Now, if that's the case, that brings us to the second question, and that's this. In what sense does our abiding in that sphere of love, trusting God's love for us and then obeying that to love God and love others, in what sense does that abiding in love create a situation where God abides in us and we in him? Because look again at verse 16. Look at the second half. Look what he says. He says, the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In other words, you remain in God by staying in that sphere of his love for you and your response to that. Now, what's he talking about there? In what sense does that do that? Well, he's actually already given us the answer. It's contained in the text. The first two statements, verse 15 and verse 16a, are related to faith. What are we talking about? In verse 15, look what he says. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, and we said before that that isn't just a verbal confession, that's faith, right? It's believing that Jesus is the Son of God and He came into the world to die for your sins. And the second is faith as well. In verse 16a, what does He say? He says, we know and believe. That's faith, right? We're trusting in that reality. So what is He saying at the end of verse 16? He's saying the one who remains in that love relationship experientially knows the abiding presence of God in him. In faith in God's love and with a heart for, of love for God and for others, we experience God's presence and care for us in a tangible way. Now, what, what does that mean? What am I saying? And what's John saying here? And maybe you've experienced this in your life before. When you doubt that God loves you, how does God feel to you? He feels far from you, doesn't he? You doubt that he loves you and there seems to be a distance. Now, whatever caused that doubt, that's there and you're not sure that he loves you and there's a distance between you and God. He, he doesn't seem close to you, he seems far away. Your experience of abiding in him is lost. You're not close to him. And when you sin and you don't love other people or you don't love him, your experience of abiding in his presence is lost as well, isn't it? You know this. Maybe you're walking in the Spirit, you're doing well, you're trusting the love of God for you, and then you sin against someone. You get angry on the freeway, you sin against your children, you yell at your spouse, you have anger towards someone in your heart. You sin, even not necessarily against another person, but you just sin against God in your heart through some evil thought or evil action. And what happens to your experience of the nearness of God? God starts to feel far away, doesn't he? He starts to feel distant. You're no longer walking in the Spirit. You're not living in the love that defines God. And so you begin to feel far from God. He feels far from you. You're not certain anymore. Doubt floods your heart. So John says, remain in love. Abide in that sphere of love. What does it mean? Trust that God loves you. And then love. 
And as you do that, you will experience the abiding presence of God in you. You will know the love of God in you. That moment of joy that you feel in the best quiet time you've ever had, when you know that God loves you and you're confident of that truth, it fills your heart with the light of God's glory. You say, this is beautiful. That's the most satisfying thing to me. He says, stay there. How do I stay there? Well, I believe that he loves me and I respond in love to him and others. That keeps me there. But this leads to a third question. The third question is this. Does God stop abiding in you when you fail to experience His abiding presence? Does that question make sense? Is God actually far away from you? Is He in heaven like, John, repent. I'm far from you. I'll come back when you start doing the right things. Is God far from me at those moments? The answer is clearly no, right? It's clearly no. Paul says in Romans 8.33, we just read that, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? That's the good news of the gospel, right? God hasn't left me. So what's the problem with my experience of the abiding presence of God? Why does John make this a conditional statement? That's my question. And the answer, I think, is found in the reversal of the words that John uses. Maybe you didn't notice this, but look at verse 15 with me. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him and he in God. God first, us second. John 15, John uh, chapter 4, verse 16b, he says, God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. What has he done? He's reversed the order. Why would he reverse the order? Some commentaries say there's no reason. It's just stylistic. But I think there's a reason for that. In verse 15, he is talking about salvation. The one who confesses this, God abides in them. And they abide in God. They're together with God. That that union cannot be broken. But in verse 16b, he's talking about experience. The one who stays there, who trusts that reality, who lives that reality out, he abides in God. He experiences the nearness of God and God abides in him. What he's saying is that as you trust God's love for you and you show that love and obedience to him, you experientially enjoy his presence in you. That's crucial. So maybe you struggled in point three to answer the question, does God love you? If you answer that from the heart, yes, I believe that then you understand God's presence. You're full of joy, right? I trust that that's true. And every circumstance in your life is ordered by that. But if you're not experiencing that now, there's a potential of three things. First, it could be that you don't actually know God. You're not actually a believer. You don't know him. You've never actually confessed that Jesus is the son of God on your behalf. You've never come to know and believe the love that God has for you as shown in the death of his son on the cross. You're not actually saved. No matter where you go or what you do or all of your external life, you don't actually know that. That's one possibility. Second possibility is that you have experienced that in the past. You know it, but right now you're not trusting that because of something that's happening in your heart. And what would John say? He would say, go back to that truth. 
the truth that Jesus died for you. Go back to the truth of the gospel, which is unilateral to you through Christ. But there's a third possibility. And that's maybe you have some unconfessed sin because you don't love the way you ought to love. Maybe you're not loving God or loving others as you should be. And that can keep you from trusting that God loves you. How does that work? When we sin, what do we feel? What do you feel when you sin? You feel guilt. You feel shame, don't you? Think of a time when you've gotten angry recently. You get angry and you say something you shouldn't. And you know you shouldn't have said it. And you feel guilty and you feel shameful because you know you haven't loved others the way that you ought to love. And what happens? You begin to think to yourself, I would never love a person like me. I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. God probably doesn't love me either. I'm so unlovable. God probably doesn't love me. Now, is that true if you're a Christian? It's not. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? He still loves you. His love hasn't changed. What has changed is your experience of that love because you have an unconfessed sin. So what do you need to do now with that anger that you've committed, the thing that's causing you guilt and shame? What do you need to do with that? You need to take it to God and say, Lord, this is how bad I actually am. I don't deserve for you to love me. Please forgive me. And what's his answer? Yes. You're forgiven. It's done. You're forgiven. Why? Not because of you and not because you repented, because Jesus Christ is my son and he died on the cross for your sins. Trust that. That's why the gospel is good news. But if you don't confess your sin, you don't repent, you know what will happen? That doubt will grow like a cancer. It begins to grow in your heart and it'll get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And your doubt of God will continue to grow. And you'll say, I'm not sure if God loves me. I'm such a bad person. The way out of that is not try to put on a good face and come to church. The way out of that is repentance. Confess your sins and trust what God has done for you in Christ. So John gives us everything that is contained in the Christian life here. He gives us everything. This is why I think it's John's manifesto. He says, if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God for us, we are believers, and God comes and abides in us, and we abide in Him. We are now safe in Him. And in that confession, we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. He loves me right now. Why? How do I know that? Because of the cross, because of what He's done for us for me in Christ. And then as I actively believe that God loves me, regardless of my life circumstance, as I trust that reality, and as I live that out in my daily life, both through righteousness and through repentance when I fail, when I obey the command to love Him and love others, I enjoy His abiding presence. I live in the goodness of a God who loves me. That's the whole Christian life. That's your whole Christian life. Summarized in two verses. That's John's summary of all of his theology. A confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Mutual faith in God's love in the gospel. 
and a life of receiving and giving the love of God through Christ. And all of that produces joy in him because of him and who he is for us in his son. I hope that's your experience this morning. Because if that's true, everything changes, doesn't it? It's crazy. Every circumstance in your life takes on new meaning. Pain becomes kindness. Suffering becomes blessing. Complexity becomes goodness. Everything that is coming to us is now coming from a hand of a loving Father who is serving me for my change and my good. Everything now is reshaped by the fact that God loves me and I'm living in trust and faith in that as I'm living it out. But if that's not your experience this morning, I would appeal to you to just go back through John's logic. Start with faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Believe that truth for you. And then move to your knowledge and belief that God loves you. Ask yourself that oh-so-important question, do I believe right now that God is loving me? Do I actually trust that right now? And then consider, is there any unconfessed sin that is clogging my relationship with God? Is there anything that's blocking my faith in that truth? Because I haven't actually dealt with a sin that's in my heart. God is love. He is love. And we live and abide in him through Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. We thank you that all of this that we've talked about this morning is from him. Lord, I know these things are complex things, but I pray that you would help us to see, Lord, to see that it is a confession of Jesus as your son that brings us into this relationship with you, Lord, a relationship that will never change in spite of our struggles. Lord, I pray that you would help us to come to know and to believe the love that you have for us. Lord, that we would trust that you love us right now, that it isn't something that we have to manufacture. It's something that we have to simply cling to because it is what your word tells us. Lord, that you love us and that nothing will ever separate us from the love that, we, that you have for us in your son. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to abide in that love to remain not only in receiving love from you, but in giving love to you and to others in our obedience to your word. Lord, that we would obey. And when we fail to obey, that we would go in repentance and we would receive again the reminder that you love us and that there is no condemnation for us in Christ. Lord, that in doing these things, we would live a life of faith in your Son. And that through that faith, you would cause us to live and act in Christ-like ways. And Lord, we pray this so that you would be glorified in our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.